This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and to help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the nonprofit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode, join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry and you're listening to Trek FM. some light reading in case i got bored welcome everyone to literary treks number 249 right here on the trek fm network your official star trek books and comics podcast i am bruce gibson i thank you so much for joining us and with me as he is every time we do the show because i don't want to say he's with me always because that would just be weird just, he's always with me when we do the show, and that is Dan Gunther. How you doing, Dan? Hey, Bruce. I'm doing well. You know, you're always with me in my heart. Oh, you're so sweet. <laughs> wow. Okay. Well, let's move on. <laughs> no. So, okay. Today's feature, we are going to talk about not a novel, but it is still a book. This is Star Trek Lost Scenes, and these are lost scenes, meaning clips. Well, it's a book, so I shouldn't say clips, but it's like photos from clips from the series, deleted scenes, bloopers, behind the scenes stuff. There's scripts from the the deleted scenes. There's all kinds of stuff in there. And so we have the authors on to talk about Star Trek Lost Scenes. And it's a really wonderful book. And I think you should stick around to hear about that. Definitely. I I really want to stress how cool this book is. And uh, it's it's a hefty tome. I lugged it over to my computer to record today. And uh, it's, it's really great. And I think we've got an excellent interview planned for you guys. So stick around for that. It's going to be a lot of fun. But before we do that, we do have a comic that recently came out that we want to go through. And it's Star Trek versus Transformers number two. So we... Uh, reviewed the first issue on a previous episode. Now we're going to go through issue number two. Now, again, you're probably saying, wait, Star Trek and Transformers? What is that? Well, this is kind of a fun comic series. It's using the animated series Star Trek visuals, the the style of the characters and such. And Eric's and Maress are in there, for example. So it's like taking two Saturday morning cartoons and blending them together into a comic book. So it's just supposed to be some fun. So starting off with this issue, we're on a planet with Spock, McCoy, and Scotty. And they have this transformer there that right now is not operating. And they don't know how to turn this big 
transformer on. <laughs> I'm sorry, this is just so funny, just talking about it. And so Spock says, well, you know, there are signs bear a striking resemblance to the neurological activity within human brains. Perhaps I can utilize the Vulcan mind meld to, and yes, he mind melds with the transformer. And then, mm-hmm. boom, <laughs> too much information or something, and Spock falls back, and McCoy's like, Spock, my God, man, you'll get yourself killed. But then Optimus Prime stands up. He's awakened from Spock's mind meld. So, Dan, were you impressed by this point? <laughs> <laughs> well, this is... Okay. So, getting into this, I I kind of had to shift gears in my brain because, like you said, you have to just treat it like it's a fun Saturday morning cartoon thing. And once I kind of remembered that and made that switch in my head, I'm, I'm enjoying this. You know, it's just... I, I flash back to the days when I'm a kid watching Saturday morning cartoons, and I was never really big into Transformers. And Star Trek The Animated Series was just slightly before my time, so I kind of missed that. I, I catch the occasional rerun. I'm not sure where. I do know that I did see an occasional episode, but... It was never, neither of these were really my show kind of thing. So I just kind of had to slip back into that persona in the 80s watching cartoons in the morning. And I really got into it. I did like, you know, the Trek trope, Spock using his mind meld and and contacting Optimus Prime. The thing that I thought was kind of cool is, uh, I, I could be wrong, but I think Leonard Nimoy voiced Optimus Prime at least in the Transformers movie, like the old cartoon movie. Oh, wow. I think you're right. I think I which, remember hearing that. Yeah, which makes this kind of cool if, uh, you know, it's Leonard Nimoy talking to Leonard Nimoy as Spock and Optimus Prime. But So that kind of made me smile a little bit throughout oh, this bit. There you go. A little piece of trivia right there. That's interesting. But yeah, as this goes on, Optimus Prime is saying, well, you know, we're the... De- Decepticons because they were fighting them and they said oh they left somewhere but you're the only one remaining here on the planet and Optimus Prime says no I'm not and then of course we go to a scene underground on the planet and there's these there's these other Transformers blasting at Kirk and Emress and and Sulu and they're like oh hold on we're 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 not the enemy. We're 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 here to help. We're here to help. And they're like, yeah, right. Yeah, you you you're just a little bug to us, you know. No, no, no. We're trying to help you. <laughs> <laughs> and there's Bumblebee. I think my favorite bit from this is Bumblebee grabs Mares and is holding her, and Bumblebee says, "You're a funny looking human." And just the look on her face, and she turns to him and is, you know lets out this cat hiss like. <sighs> Like, okay, yeah, you're holding me and and that's bad. But now you've said I'm a funny looking human. Now I'm mad. (laughs) That was kind of cute. So Kirk then (laughs) explains to them that, you know, we're we're friends. We're here on a peaceful mission. We are from the Federation. We were here checking on a mining operation. We were attacked by robots like you. And of course, these Transformers are like, oh, those are the Decepticons. So, yeah, you know, those are the evil ones. And so now they're all friendly and everything. And then we switch to another planet where we find the Decepticons with the Klingons. And they're all getting buddy-buddy to help destroy the Enterprise and such because the Klingons said, what, 
what we could do for you is introduce to you a cloaking device. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, very similar in style to the uh, Planet of the Apes ones, you know, where you've got the Klingons versus the Federation and then the Decepticons versus the um, Autobots, I think they are. I'm so bad. I'm such a bad nerd. But uh, this part, yeah, we've we've got basically a lot of setup here. We're setting up the two sides to kind of face off at some point against each other. Uh, the next bit I really like where uh, the Transformers who are with Kirk and Mares and Sulu are talking about, you know, the history of uh, where they come from and what their relationship to Earth is. And they flash back to World War III. I think this is really cool. The humans that we see in that section are wearing the military uniforms that we see in Encounter at Farpoint, Star Trek The Next Generation premiere episode. I don't know. I just thought that was a nice little touch, kind of showing that these guys really know their stuff. And then the panel under that shows um, two characters from Star Trek First Contact, which sees Zemfran Cochran and Lily. Yeah, nice little touches like that, I think, are really cool. So what this says to me, though, that's interesting is unless something changes in a different issue, this isn't an alternate. They're not from an alternate Earth or something. They're really kind of intertwining the history of the Transformers in with the history of our Earth. Yeah, or, or the, World the War Earth III. of Star Trek, I should say. Yeah. Which is interesting. I didn't expect them to, to go that route. No. I thought it would be like, oh, they're from an alternate reality where things played out differently. And I guess I'm assuming from this that the reason they can, the Transformers can transform into what looks like 20th and 21st century Earth vehicles is because they were on Earth and witnessed these. And that's something that they took on, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, um, so yeah, we even go to the Enterprise and we have Eric's on there in the captain's seat and they start getting attacked by the Klingons, which of course the Decepticons are with the Klingons in this. And then back on the other planet with Kirk and Emerus and Sulu, they've lost communications and uh, Optimus prime basically says, you know, we've got to go get them. And uh, the other transformers are like, Oh, we think we have an idea of how to get to fortress Maximus up and running again and uh, but it'll be risky and kurt's like "Ooh, i'm all about risk you could say that risk is his business risk <laughs> is our business that's what this crossover is all about <laughs> <laughs> so yeah i mean it's fun i think there's going to be six issues this is number two so yeah i mean it's it's a fun, quick read. You know, there's not like heavy dialogue in this. And uh, I think the art is fantastic. It looks, it all fits, you know, the Saturday morning style that we were just talking about. Um, the filmation type artwork with Transformers and Star Trek, the animated series. And this is written by John Barber and Mike Johnson. And the art's by Philip Murphy. Yeah, it's, uh, the look is really good. It's very consistent. There's a few I'd say more dynamic shots than we would get in the animated series, but I mean, that's okay. That's it's using the medium, but it still has that, that look that the animated series had. So, you know, some really cool stuff in here. And we have an Andorian. So that makes me happy. Yeah. Anytime there's an Andorian and it's that stern animated series, Andorian, you know, <laughs> yep. the, 
Commander Thelen Thelev. I can't remember his name, but yeah, it looks like that guy. <laughs> yeah, that guy. All right. Well, what do you say we go into the feature? I'm excited for this. Let's go. Well, welcome to the feature here on Literary Treks. We have two guests with us today, and it's involving the book Star Trek Lost Scenes. And we had David Talada here and Kirk Macaloni. Welcome, guys, to the show. Hi. Hey. Hey, welcome. So glad, glad to have you on the show. Good to be here. Yeah, thank you for the invitation. <laughs> yeah, and thank you. And thank you for all the hard work you put in this book, because this is a uh, this is a big, heavy book that you guys put together with all these lost scenes from the original series. It's all original series stuff. And before we get into the book, we just want to ask you guys, and, and Kirk, we'll start with you. Okay. How did you become a Star Trek fan? How did you get into the fandom? Actually, um, I was in, well, this is really getting into how old I am, but I was in uh, sixth grade when it came out in 66. And... Uh, it was, I remember the episode came on, I'd missed a few of them, and then I wanted to see one, and it was uh, Mud's Women, or, yeah, and Mud's Women, and it had all the babes on it and all that. So I said to my mom, can you watch it for me and tell me what it's all about? And so she thought it was like space hookers, and <laughs> 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 didn't really want me to watch it, so. <laughs> it wasn't until a couple of years later that I finally, you know, started watching with, hey, I've been missing a lot of cool stuff here. And then, of course, in the 70s, when it was on, like, the local stations ad infinitum, you know, I caught up with it then and really started enjoying it and collecting the memorabilia and that type of thing. And then, uh, as, as probably as both Dave and I uh, got interested in Lincoln Enterprises, which was uh, Roddenberry's uh, film clip company and the rest is pretty much history from there yes i guess so and then dave how did you get involved in watching space hookers <laughs> uh we uh you know actually i didn't watch uh, space hookers i that i didn't that, i didn't start with that episode um i started with uh that which survives which uh probably is somewhere uh, slightly better than that than uh, i mud but or muds women but uh, who knows um, no, for me, I guess I've always been interested in, in science fiction. I remember being born uh, interested in science fiction and just, you know, read lots of books and things. And one evening, I happened to be uh, playing around with my parents' old black and white TV, and which is all, you know, they, they had, all we had grown up. And uh, suddenly, like, what is this show? You know, what these these people standing around on this planet and, and this funny looking spaceship. And, and it really intrigued me. And I watched the whole thing, and I thought, I got to keep watching this. And in fact, I watched Star Trek, I think it was, must have been the entire rest of the third season. And at some point, I learned that Star Trek was in color. And I thought, oh, my gosh, it's in color. I can't believe it. Because I, I thought, you know, it was in black and white. Uh, and I was just totally blown away when I saw the first Lincoln film clips. These are, these are in color. This series is in color. Well, that's pretty cool. Uh, so, um, so that was my sort of introduction to Star Trek is through that which survives. And then, how did the two of you meet? Well, um, I was a cinematographer for almost twenty five years, and then um, I decided that uh, that I wanted to uh, not be on the road so much, and I had a background in doing artwork and a lot of and also 
that led to doing restoration, photo restorations. And then I pulled out my old clips and I started restoring them. And I made a website called StarTrekHistory.com and started posting them. Dave saw the site and wanted to do the same thing and wanted some tips on restoration. So we got together and we started collaborating and I found out that he had a bunch of clips and I had a bunch of clips and, you know, we, it basically blossomed from that. That was back in 2005, I think, wasn't it, Dave? Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. That's yeah. right. Yeah. And, uh, and I should point out that, you know, Kurt and I actually have never really met beyond the electronic. Yeah. We've known yeah. each other for a long time, but we've actually never been face to face. Yeah. Yeah, I'll have to say, it's quite amazing, uh, the internet, uh, because uh, this book probably would never have been made uh, if, by conventional means of, you know, having never meeting you and all that type of thing. Yeah, no, exactly. Yep. Absolutely. Yep. Hmm. So the genesis of this book then, was that something that you guys came up with during this process or how did how did that idea come about? I know uh, I've had correspondence with uh, uh, Michael Okuda. Are you familiar with him? Yes, he's actually been on the show twice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And though I've never met him, but I've had email correspondence and he's seen, uh, he saw Star Trek history and he was uh, working or a person that was uh, uh, coming out with a book, the 365 Star Trek book. Do you remember that? It came out a couple of years ago. Yeah, that was uh, Paula Block and Terry Erdman, I think. Did yes, that yes. And they wanted to uh, get uh, all kinds of picks and they were you know, wanting people to send them in. And Michael said, well, you need to contact this guy and these two guys because they got some really cool stuff on this website. And uh, so that's how we got in contact with that. And then we um, we thought, well, you know, you know, we got really lucky with that. Maybe we'll get lucky with something else. And we so we pitched the idea to the, um, well, I can't remember her name yet. What was it? Oh, Paula, Paula, Paula Block. And, yeah, Paula, yeah. I'm sorry, yeah. <laughs> and um, she said, well, who you need to talk to is someone from CBS. So she got us in contact with a CBS person, and they said, well, you, you'll have to get in contact with someone that does our book publishing for CBS. And so they got us in contact with Titan Books over in England. And uh, so that's basically how it got going. But it was it was a long drawn out process. This this uh, I was looking back on the emails and such, and oh, this was almost like we've been doing this almost for eight years, I think, Dave. Oh, working on the book for eight years? Wow, it's been yeah. That long. Yeah, I, I yeah, I'd believe that. Yeah, yeah I'd believe it too. We, we wanted to get it done by for the fiftieth or eventually for the that's what that was the impetus to kind of get this whole thing going. And uh, but we uh, they had so many. Uh, you know, things on their plate already for that. They said, well, we'll just, you just guys make it and we'll put, we'll come out with a time for you to, you know, to have it shown. So that seemed to be the way um, it went. So, well, it's obvious from, you know, reading through this book that uh, a lot of work in, went into it and it doesn't surprise me. It took so many years. Uh, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the process of, you know, getting the images and all of the meticulous research that went into this book. I, I understand, of course, you did a lot with the website to begin with, but what what kind of 
like how many hours would you say probably went into just the research for this? Yeah, that's um, so the, the genesis. I mean, it's pretty interesting. And so, um, so when we first started to come up with the concept of the book after we sort of got the green light, we were thinking, all right, let's go ahead and or- organize the book. Um, we would have one chapter for every episode. And so we actually started to put it together that way. And very quickly, it turned out that we had probably uh, as as a manuscript about 650 pages and suddenly went, oh, my God, we can't possibly do this. No one's going to, you know, they would laugh us out. Nobody would print a 650 page book. Um, And, um, you know, you thought uh, the the existing Lost Saints book was heavy. This would have been just ridiculous. Um, (laughs) And so um, at that point, hernia grade, yeah, hernia grade. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, and so at that point, what we decided to do was to um, figure out a sort of a structure for the book that would allow us to cut it down into something more manageable. And uh, and so we thought, all right, one way to do this is to um, know rather than look at uh, various episodes, break it up into sort of subject matter, topical matters where we would have a chapter on on makeup and a chapter on the special effects and a chapter on, uh, you know, the, the lost scenes from you know this episode and that episode and then bloopers and then subcategories and things like that. Um, and that sort of allowed us then to sort of uh, put together an outline of, OK, this is going to be. Um, a, a, a textbook, a, a Trex book or something, um, where we walk through, uh, you know, the various pieces, um, you know, how the show is made, that kind of thing. And once we sort of settled on that, then it was a matter of filling in all of the details. And um, I don't know, but I think, and Kurt will probably agree that it took us a long time to do the research for the behind the scenes section, because... Um, you know, we had film clips and we could put them together and tell little stories with them. Uh, you know, for example, here's how the matte paintings were developed and used. Uh, but then we actually had to fill in a lot of those details and, and, and say, all right, it's been conjectured over the years that this is how Albert Whitlock did the, the painting and this is how it was used. But really, how did he do it and how were these paintings used? And this frame seems, seems to show this thing. What does it mean? And so then we spent a lot of time in the library. A lot of time talking to people to try to figure out, you know, I mean, how were these things done back then, you know, in the 60s? And it was a challenge because um, there are not many people alive today that worked on the original series. Right. And we also had um, people that were helping us out by uh, looking stuff up in the L.A. archives, uh, Roddenberry's archives, and uh, finding all kinds of interesting stuff there. And... um, call sheets and such so we could get you know all the names of the actors and stuff yeah exactly and the bit parts and that type of thing yeah what's amazing to me is we've had over 50 years of star trek and every time i think we've probably seen every behind the scenes photo or information about the show we keep discovering more what how did you come about all these different images all these clips i mean there's tons and tons in here uh behind the scenes of what they're making and the deleted scenes and the bloopers and such which will go through all those sections in a moment but how did you get hold of all that well uh lincoln enterprises um which was the source material for the clips um they basically had clips of everything that went before the camera and uh, a lot of the behind the scenes stuff is from what was called runout footage, which means that there'd be stuff in the camera, a film in the camera, but it wouldn't be long enough to uh, do another take 
and it wasn't um, worth saving, you know, the, the snip it off and save it for later because it would be too short. So they would just let the camera run. They'd turn it to the side or whatever, and they would just let it run. And so you would see people like the directors and talking to one of the actors or something like that. Um, and so what that was probably considered, well, I know it was considered as garbage, but when they make a work print, sometimes they'll just make a print of the entire reel for the editors to pick from stuff. And so they would just go snip, 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 and throw that stuff into a you know, some other bin or whatever it is. And uh, that eventually ended up getting um, uh, put all together on some reels. And they said, and then Rod Mary said, yeah, oh, I don't know if they'll like this or not, but let's, let's see if they like this. And they snipped it up and they even had a section of, I believe, Dave, didn't they, on, on, on uh, sets and props and stuff like that? Yeah. Yeah, different categories. They had like all the stars and then they had ships, planets and, and stuff like that. So, so it was just like uh, you weren't planning on seeing Apollo against a blue screen. You were, it was just like, wow, this is under aliens. And then there he was against the blue screen. And you were like, oh, what's that all about? You know, what's this? What's, I didn't see that in the show, you know. And uh, so that's basically, it was a lot of uh, basically just good luck finding it. So there was a lot of these film clips that Lincoln Enterprise mailed out yes. to fans. Yeah. Were you gathering this from other fans who collect these over the years, or were these clips specifically from actual scenes that were used on air that they were mailing out? Well, uh, I am. Uh, I put out on my website, uh, StarTrekHistory.com, um, a little blurb that said, "If you send them to me." I'll restore them, and that's how you'll get uh, get reimbursed by having the restorations. But if you send them to me, it's uh, I get to keep the original Photoshop files, the files that I worked on, and I can do with them what I want. That's the, that's the deal. And so I got a lot of people sending me stuff and uh, things I'd never seen before. It's like, oh, this is great. And then um, David. Uh, likes to uh, collect them and trade and stuff. So that that was another source of, uh, of getting the uh, material. Yeah, so, you know, it's pretty interesting. As Kurt said, er, uh, pretty much anything and everything that went before the cameras, uh, you know, wound up really in the film clips. I mean, it was all the, you know, the work print and daily footage. Uh, and so they cut all that up and, well, not all of it. They cut up a, a good part of it. Um, as you know, some of it was, you know, found a few years ago. Uh, by um, Rod Roddenberry, and you know some of that material wound up on the the Blu-ray set, you know the Roddenberry Vault set, uh, and so so basically we're all kind of one big happy family. We're working with the pieces that didn't get cut up, um, but since they cut up everything, uh, you know the vast majority of the film clips that uh, Lincoln sold, and Lincoln was the source, but the vast majority of the film clips that they sold uh, really just showed pretty much the things that you could see on the episodes, and so they were kind of you know, by and large, uninteresting. Uh, there, though, were there were the nuggets, if you will, um, which you know the behind-the-scenes things, the bloopers, the deleted scenes, uh, which were also present in those packets. Um, I've collected enough film clips over the years. Um, I've got like two or three million in my collection, and so you know, I've sort of done the, the math. And in a random set, about four percent of those film clips contained things that had never been seen before. Um, you know, slate shots, you know, the guy holding the clapperboard, uh, you know, like I said, bloopers and deleted scenes. Um, and so basically, after you 
if, when you collect enough of the film clips, you begin to see, uh, you know, the various pieces, uh, and then you begin to, to uh, see the, the various elements of the deleted scenes and things like that. And that was really, um, the, the, we drew the source material really from, from our collections for the book. Uh, you know, based on on decades of collecting uh, from Lincoln and trading with other fans and those kinds of things. Well, I love that, you know, nobody at that time would ever have thought that we'd have this obsession with, you know, what we call bonus materials now. And just all of, all of that was trash. And the fact that so much of it has actually survived through this is really remarkable. Literally from trash to treasure. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> yeah. 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 That's awesome. I feel like as someone who's, you know, read so many behind the scenes things from Star Trek and, you know, I've been obsessed about this show and all the spinoffs for my whole life. This book, it just surprised me how much was brand new to me and, and amazing in here. And I think one of the biggest things was just the explanation of the technology of how they did this stuff. Uh, the first bit of this book is basically like a primer in in how to do visual effects in 1966 which yeah i had no idea and and you know i know old film has kind of this pinkish hue to it but i had no idea why and you guys go into such fine detail about all that i thought that was really incredible and just kind of a neat little uh, uh time capsule for the fans oh that's great i'm glad you enjoyed that yeah, yeah thank you thank you well you know both of us uh, are are really educators um and we both like to teach and, and i think you can see it on, on star trek history.com and so you know as we put the book together we wanted to make sure that uh, you know we we captured that that history if you will before it got lost uh you know and, and how the uh what was happening to the film and how the effects were done and things like that yeah i really enjoy the book not just because it's star trek but probably even more so, it's really an education in the history of how television production took place in the 60s. And uh, my degree is in broadcasting, and I work in television, but not in production. And I'm also in the process of studying or researching some history on the Andy Griffith show, which is that oh. same time period. Yeah. So <laughs> this yeah. is really like up my alley, and I really enjoy learning how that whole process there was things i was very familiar with and others that i hadn't and also just to see certain episodes that you call out in here and how those visual effects were done or how things were shot at that time now when i watch the episode i'm going to start thinking of those things <laughs> cool yeah. great all right see see it worked kurt all right <laughs> <laughs> it was worth the effort it was worth it that's right <laughs> well, and then the book, as you mentioned, you're trying to figure out how to lay out the book. And there's three main sections, behind the scenes, deleted scenes, and bloopers. And I think we've talked a lot about the behind the scenes, but is there anything specific in that section that you would like to mention or, or took a long time to research or, or figure out? Yeah, it, it all took time. Um, the, the Really, the special effects section uh, and the, on those sections, I guess, probably took the longest. Uh, to really, um, so that we could nail down some of the specifics about how some of the optical effects work was done. Uh, because um, I think we learned, I learned, I don't want to put words in Kurt's mouth, that, um, you know, they employed a lot of different effects houses. And uh, they all seemed to use slightly different techniques in implementing a lot of the effects. I mean, there was some commonality, but, um, you know, like the transporter effect was done by one company in one way, and it was done by a different company in a different way. Uh, and so it was it was time consuming for us to kind of track all that stuff done and 
down and talk to people and uh, tr to do the research on that. So I think, I guess in my mind, that took the longest bit. Yeah, that was really surprising to me uh, when I got to that, the list of all the effects houses. I had no idea that so many different kind of companies went into doing that. And, you know, I think we see those credits flash by at the end of the episode and you know, we don't tend to really dig into that, so that was really interesting. Yeah, to that was that. the basic, uh, basically the uh, the big eater of the budget, mm. and uh, it was also well, Star Trek was groundbreaking in so many ways, but it was also uh, groundbreaking and bu budget breaking <laughs> because uh, not very many effects houses. First of all, they they would normally just do title sequences for TV. There weren't any. Ray guns that you know, except for maybe Lost in Space, that type of thing. Mm -hmm. uh, but um, yeah, so they they had to come up with these different ideas, and they would uh, they would get such vague descriptions in the script, like a glowing thing with you know pulsates comes after them. It's like okay, you know, <laughs> and uh, so yeah, I got to hand it to those guys how they they really were on a time schedule as well because you would have to have the effects done so far in advance because it takes so long to do them so that you could cut them into the show. And of course, that's the big story of, of uh, the menagerie is how they just got, you know, their back was against the wall. They said, well, we already have footage of this first pilot. Maybe we can just, you know, pop that in there and we'll just bookend it. So give our effects guys a chance to breathe. <laughs> One of the things I liked in this section is about the episode, The Empath, where the aliens on the cloud, the way it shot down on them, yes. but yet in the show, they're supposed to be floating up, yes. but that angle does not work when you're looking from Kirk's angle up at them. So they had to put in some cloud, like not the fake cloud they were standing on, but some visual effect on that. Yeah. I think their cotton ball budget was black blown away with that episode there. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And then similarly, like they did not have good luck with clouds because the this the city Stratos from Cl the Cloudminders, yes. that picture with the cotton balls, like that would have been totally different if they'd have stuck with that visual effect. It was amazing to me some of that stuff. Yeah. Yeah, I think the cotton balls, the cotton balls would have really given it away as as a model because I mean, when you look at that picture you go, that's a model. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Yep. And uh, yeah, and, and it's pretty interesting because there's there's other pictures out there of, and I forgot which one we use in the book, but of of uh, of Shatner and Nimoy actually looking at the model, and it's it's pulled back really far, and you can see the edges of the set, and it looks for all the world like these these two guys staring at this model against um, you know basically an orange lit uh, back screen. It looked really really pretty bad. Yeah. So I have to ask you guys. Uh, which version of Star Trek do you watch today? The original special effects or the revised ones? Um, I watch the, uh, not, not because it's the effects work, but I like the fact that they've transferred the film and cleaned it up and all that kind of stuff. And I like, I watch it for that reason more than I do the effects. The effects, well, the, the old saying, haste makes waste. You know, they were so much against the gun and tight budget. It's, it's some of that stuff just looks, uh, does, doesn't sell as well as like the effects that were used, uh, the effects company that like um, was used for uh, Enterprise and, and some of the other uh, series. Uh, so, but they were, you know, that, that was their first effort. CBS uh, Digital, I think it was. 
Yeah. And uh, they, there were some stunning things in there, really good things I liked, like uh, the uh, um, the mock time where they uh, where they walk across the uh, the uh, bridge to where to the where they're going to do the fighting, you know, and they added an extra scene in there. Um, but uh, yeah, the ship shots. You know, it would be more would have been more impressive, I thought, if they had had the ability to match the millimeter that was used in the original series. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. I don't know, but I'm just being picky. <laughs> yeah, do the new special effects bother you, Dave, or do you prefer the old? Um, the uh, 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 I guess I'm stuttering here because um, you know I, I know that uh, the fans are are pretty divided on this. You've got some that really like the the remastered and others that don't. Um, honestly, I guess I prefer the the original effects for the most part. Um, I think um, by by them remastering by changing them out, you know, and going to sort of a um, sort of CGI, uh, they've sort of exchanged one problem for another. I, I know their heart was in the right place. They wanted to you know, go in and clean stuff up and get rid of mat lines and dirt and things like that. Ultimately, when they did that, though, uh, I think the technology at the time and, and the budget, they just uh, weren't able to come up in a lot of cases with effects I thought that were really um, convincing. Um, mm-hmm. So so they went from, you know, a sort of a dirty effects to cleaned up effects were a little bit less convincing. Um, I, I think a lot of the original effects still hold up pretty darn well today. Yeah. Um, every time I watch the the original shots of uh, the Enterprise towing Khan's uh, sleeper ship, I think, you know, that still looks pretty darn good today. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, they went to, a, they spent a lot of time. I mean, you can see his ship bob up and down relative to the Enterprise's model. Um, and some, some, you know, the behind the scenes footage shows how they did that with boards, by the way, and some guy standing there, you know, pumping it up and down. Uh, and I think that holds up really well today. Uh, and I don't think that needed remastered. So, yeah. In fact, um, I, I'm sure you guys have seen the Roddenberry um, uh, Blu-ray yeah. tapes where they had some of the scenes that they found of uh, the raw footage of the ship. And they yeah. color corrected that, and that stuff just blew me away. And I was like, "Wow, why didn't they just replace the stuff with with that?" You know, I mean, because that look that stuff looked dynamite. Yeah, there's something about the weight of that original 11 foot model, and and yeah, you know, yeah, some of those shots are just gorgeous for sure. Yeah, they are. Yeah, oh, yeah, she's that, that model's just gorgeous. I mean, it was uh, it was just it's just a gorgeous model. Yeah, mm. which you can see in the Smithsonian in Washington D.C. Yeah. <laughs> cleaned up and pristine and she not looked better. Yeah. 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 So then the next section is deleted scenes. And this section was, is interesting too, because again, I felt like we probably heard about any scene that has been deleted, but not in all cases. And uh, there's some interesting things in in there, like the Corbinite maneuver. Uh, there was a scene dropped where Kirk refers to Sulu as being Oriental. And, as you mentioned the book, it's like, did they drop it because it just it was a scene they dropped, or was it because they didn't like the reference to Oriental at that time? I don't know. But that's an interesting point too. Yeah. Yeah, where he was uh what were the terms? I can't remember, but he was like the um yeah, the inscrutable oriental. Yeah, inscrutable, yeah. That's yeah inscrutable oriental, yeah. I, I did, when when I first read that scene, I thought, man, I mean, how would that play today? And and you know, it's hard to to step back and put yourself into nineteen, you know, sixties. 
mode when you read that stuff, you know, and, you know, it's a different time than it is today, but today I don't think it plays well at all. And I'm going to, we, we sort of conjectured that really it would not have played really well back then because it comes across as being kind of, kind of stereotypical. Yeah. In fact, Doug Drexler in the uh, forward mentions that uh, he said it was like uh, the sound effect in his mind of the uh, of the needle going across a record. <laughs> when he read that, that's right. Yeah, like whoa, what's this? Was there a, a particular deleted scene that you guys uh, had stumbled across that you weren't aware of before, or was this kind of all known to you before launching into this project? Well, you know, it's interesting because uh, some of the deleted scenes you can find uh, in the James Blish books because, mm. you know, when mm. he wrote those books, he oftentimes worked from uh, what he thought were the final drafts and shooting drafts of the scripts. And so um, if you read those carefully, you can find um, a lot of deleted scenes. Now, you have to be careful because, uh, you know, James Blish was a uh, science fiction writer and he sometimes added science fiction elements. He embellished, you know, some of his stories with things that uh, were not in the scripts. Uh, and uh, so it's kind of hard to parse out sometimes, you know, what as what's a deleted scene versus his imagination. Um, but but even given that, though, there are some things uh, in, in the film clip, you know, records that, that I was surprised they didn't know about, uh, that he didn't pick up on. Um, and uh, like, for example, um, one of my favorite deleted scenes is the is the the bit where uh, from Gamesters of Triskelion, where Uhura basically throws Lars across the cell, you know, right after Kirk is you know gone. No, Uhura, what's happening to you, Uhura? You know, um, and it's like you know that's an interesting bit because it really changes how that scene played out. To because the way it was edited in the final broadcast, it's like you know uh, this this poor woman, you know, was she going to be okay? And, and somehow uh, she's fine now, and uh, things are okay. But in, the way it was shot was she basically knocked this guy on his butt across the the room, uh, and that was a surprise to me. And, and that was not in the Bush books. So, All right. I was surprised that there was such a, a long bit that was cut out with. Um a title escapes me right now, but it's one with Lincoln. Oh, the Savage Curtain. Savage Curtain, yes, where he's sitting across and, you know, going, oh, well, what do you mean we're, we're above the planet and, you know, all this kind of stuff, and, and basically talking like he's really from that period and, and the back and forth banter between that. It was kind of interesting. Um, one thing I was thinking about, um, that if I could go back to the um, – behind the scenes. One thing we've never been able to find is any blue screen photography uh, or technicians around the model for the doomsday machine. That is sort of like the, uh, you know, the, the goblet that we're looking for. <laughs> yeah, the holy grail. The holy grail. <laughs> <laughs> because it's like, well, how big was it? Uh, what was it made out of? You know, that type of thing. Who made it? Yeah, that was surprising to me that there's so little known about that. And uh, and it's it's one of those things that like even the filmed version, it's really hard to tell exactly what the material is and what it's made out of. Yeah. Well, then there's the Romulan commander that Kirk salutes to. Oh, in Ballads yeah, of Terror. yeah. The saluting scene. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. I think I would have liked that to have remained in the show. I don't know. That's that's. That's so telling. It's like, you know, that honor of even though we're enemies, 
I salute you. Right. Right. There's a respect. Right. That, yeah, that work, works either way. I mean, I, I could see a you see that being put back in without any problem. Yeah, it's it's an interesting scene. Uh, you know, over the years, some people have sort of wondered uh, if Roddenberry didn't have that cut because he thought it was too militaristic. That you know would would a would Kirk, a captain of a ship, you know, do that in a ship that supposedly, well, you know, it wasn't really supposed to be militaristic, but it's it sort of is. I mean, obviously, it's a. It's a you know, it's a combined services ship, but um, that's what a lot of people have thought over the years. And so I'm not sure we really know why it was removed, but um, it's very clearly in the UCLA records uh, from the production of the episode that they wanted it out. Interesting. Yeah. Well, the the third section of the book uh, is a particular fun one. And, you know, anytime we get those little snippets from the holiday, you know, blooper reel that they'd show at the studio, you know, those are always so much fun. So it was really great to kind of dig into some of those shots of the bloopers that you have in this third section of the book. Uh, what can you tell us about kind of compiling that information and, and what are some of the things that stood out from you from that section? Well, kind of interesting how we ended up getting some of the, the, the stills were from small 35 millimeter uh, clips that uh, someone had found and they wanted to have them uh, restored, you know, transferred to, uh, DVD and we took images from that. Then there were others where it was the same kind of process where we just found something where they were just laughing and you had to try and figure out what is it they're laughing about, that type of thing. But um, it would really be nice if someone could get a hold of a pristine copy of the blooper reels because all you see is these, you know, really contrasty duplicates like on YouTube, that type of thing. And I think Justman supposedly had one and sold it to a collector for tons of moolah. But um, <laughs> yeah, that would be that would be something to see that. But uh, yeah, the uh, it was fun uh, doing the um, the bloopers. It, it was a bit of a challenge because you know when we first started to put that section together, uh, we were kind of thinking, you know, well, I mean, are we going to be able to actually uh, come up with some kind of structure to this? Because I mean, uh, you know, these are still frames and you know bloopers are sort of you know, you're watching people laugh and, and it's important to know why is this person laughing or what's going on here to this person's making a funny face uh, and so we really scratched our heads on that for a while and then sort of came up with the structure that we have where we break it up into you know these are sort of uh, you know technical gaffes uh, and these are frames from the blooper reels and these are frames from deleted scenes and things like that uh, and um, and so uh, we were able to sort of come up with a way to make it work and come up with explanations for a lot of the frames as to, you know, these people are laughing, why are they laughing? Well, here's why they're laughing. Uh, and, uh, you know, we talked to, uh, about the technical gaffes, um, but honestly, uh, some of the frames were so funny, you know, people laughing and, and obviously having a really great time on the set that, you know, towards the end of that section, we just said, these are great looking pictures, let's just show the pictures identify the episodes and not worry so much. I think they'll speak for themselves. Yeah, absolutely. They're just fun to look at. And yeah, you know, typically when I think of bloopers, I think a mistake that happens in the scene and then they laugh about it or whatever. Yeah. And this isn't just that. This is really just 
a behind the scenes look at them having fun in between takes and just the fact that you're seeing the cast actually enjoying each other and laughing, you can almost kind of fill in the blanks as to what maybe is going on. Yeah. Yeah. And, and they really needed that because they they, they were such much, so much pressure to get work done, basically having to make a a half of a motion picture every week, you know, I mean, uh, uh, the hours that it takes, you just get so exhausted. I worked on several, um, on a couple of films and uh, mostly, uh, shot commercials when I shot film and you would get, you know, two in the morning, you just kind of like, you know, you're just kind of <laughs> goofy. You, you, you just have to do it just to get your head back on straight. So letting off steam, I guess. I guess that's why I'm goofy all the time. I'm blowing off steam. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Goof steam. <laughs> yeah. Some of those shots of, of the cast, like, you know, I, we we see so many, you know, publicity stills of them, you know, in character and being all serious and like some, you know, action that's going on and they're in character. And there's just something really heartwarming about seeing like Shatner and Nimoy just guffawing about something, the huge grins. And it really humanizes them in a way that that really surprised me when I was reading this, that like it just you kind of almost feel like you're on set with them there. Right, right. Yeah, you know, growing up, you know, I read a lot of, uh, of books um, and um, uh, a lot of uh, biographies, a lot of people talking about, you know, how serious Nimoy was on the set. You know, that he was always, you know, in Mr. Spock character and he, you know, he didn't want to, uh, you know, uh, really, really laugh and really smile or, or that kind of thing. Uh, and then to see all of these various frames with him laughing and, and you know, having obviously a good time on the set. It's like, you know, he, he obviously had a good time making the series and uh, I'm not quite sure where this thing came a, about, you know, with him, with people saying that, you know, he just didn't laugh on the set because that's just just not true. Yeah, I, I had that same thought reading that because I'd heard that as well. So that was it was surprising, but, you know, it was a welcome surprise for sure. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. And really, it really the camaraderie on the set must have just been fantastic. I mean... Yeah, we, we you know we you hear about problems and all that type of stuff, but obviously that that was a, a, a slice of the of the whole Star Trek story, you know the the egos involved. But um, but it looks like they, for the most part, they really knew how to make good time with the time that they had, you know. And as much as you guys have been in Star Trek fandom for all these years and doing research and stuff. Uh-huh. You've talked about some things that surprised you. Is there anything else through this research over the last eight years that really was something that you did not expect to find or or just a story or a deleted scene that just really surprised you that you never would have expected? Well, I never knew there was any slate shots for the um, in the Corbermite maneuver of the of the puppet. That was a surprise. I thought that was t- interesting. I t- um where the you know where they're actually putting a slate in front the guy's not going to talk <laughs> in, in real life but it kind of struck me as odd at first but um, that was interesting uh, yeah you know it's interesting um, doing the research for this you don't know what you don't know and you know when we went into this we said hey look you know we're going to assume that uh, you know we need to research everything that that uh, uh, you know things that are are locked down in fandom really aren't locked down that we'll just assume that everybody's assuming some things. Uh, and so, uh, you know, some of the things that uh, that surprised me were, and I guess I don't want to give away any spoilers, but uh, a, a 
case in point was the um, pronunciation, um, I guess, Magatu versus Gamatu. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Was it was a was a surprise uh, because, you know, obviously in the episode it was a Magatu. Uh, but in the original script, uh, up until almost the very last second, it's Gamatu. You know, and over the years, I mean, for forever, I think we had heard that basically that was changed because D. Kelly couldn't pronounce the word Gamatu. And as we're writing this, uh, you know, going, this doesn't really make a lot of sense because, you know, D. Kelly was a professional actor. I mean, my God, he'd spent, you know, his entire life you know, talking and speaking and studying lines. And it didn't make sense to us that basically he could not say, you know, Gamatu. And so finally, um, we asked through a friend of ours, um, DC Fontana, what's the story here? And she said, nah, that's not true. She never heard that either. That ultimately they just changed it because they thought Magatu sounded better than Gamatu. And, and, you know, it's like, oh, really? Okay. All right. Um, so there you go. So there's a, there's a, I got busted, if you will. That's that's really cool. Because, yeah, reading that, I was wondering if that would come up because I'd always heard that as well. And then when it mentions in the book that, you know, Magatu sounded better, I was like, you know, it really does, you know. And it's kind of Occam's razor. Like, that makes sense. Yeah. No, and then, and that's what she said. So, yeah, that was a, that was a surprise, I think. Yeah, there's so much stuff on the, the Internet out there from, from people that uh, it's hard to know what's uh, what's what's correct and what's incorrect. Yeah. Um, you know, um, another example is the whole um, shore leave shooting at uh, Africa, USA. And several websites report that Africa, USA is now the Shambhala Preserve, uh, which is uh, now owned by Tippi Hedren. And so we started to write that. And then for some reason, we both went, oh, let's verify that. And so we shot an email off to him, and um, within about 24 hours, we got a response back, believe it or not, from Tippi Hedren herself. Um, <laughs> yeah, that was pretty cool, actually. Yeah, that's awesome. And uh, saying, no, 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 no. I mean, Africa, USA is located up the, up the street a few miles from me. Uh, Star Trek wasn't shot here. And went, ah, oh, shoot. Okay. So, yeah. yeah. Um, so, um, yeah. So, again, um, lots, of, lots of little surprises like that uh, that we just found trying to do our due diligence. Yeah. That's very cool. Well, I know we, we talked a little bit on the other side of the page. That's, that's what we call when we talk a little bit before we start recording, uh, that there, you had so much material in this book that, uh, is there a possibility we might see a second volume, uh, of, you know, even more material from the original series? Yeah, I think Kurt and I are definitely game if this uh, book sells well enough. Um, yeah, we, we have um, enough material for another one. Uh, it, it was hard for us to figure out uh, what to put in this, this, uh, this book, this first volume. And, you know, they're all our children, so to speak. And so we, we had to make a lot of painful cuts. Um, we've got, uh, there was deleted scenes uh, in every episode. And in some of the episodes, there were, uh, you know, a lot um, there are, there are far more deleted scenes in the first season episodes than in the second. I mean, it's obvious that they got better uh, where they were able to figure out, uh, you know, script lengths and, and shooting and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, and so by the time we got to the third season, then ultimately, uh, there are fewer, but there's still a lot. And so, um, yeah, there, there's, um, uh, there's probably another, you know, 50 or 60 really interesting deleted scenes alone. Uh, that uh, that we'd like to get out there. That uh, as far as, as we know, uh, aren't they're not available anyplace. 
Oh my gosh. See, just when I think I've seen them all, there's even more. <laughs> I'll never see it all. <laughs> uh, yes. Yeah, sorry. I re- we're really sorry about that. Um, <laughs> but yeah, there's, there's a lot of really interesting stuff um, and some, some things that, that we wanted to put in from uh, Errand of Mercy, I think, that would uh, really change the perception of the Spock character in terms of what they wanted to do with Spock. Um, I guess I don't want to give out any spoilers on that. Uh, and there's more from Dagger of the Mind. There's more from, um, they shot a lot of extra footage for Enemy Within. There's just a ton of additional stuff there. Uh, and it was that episode was particularly hard for us to figure out which, what do we want to show from it. Yeah. So is there any interest in doing any of the other series, like The Next Generation or even the movies? Um, Star Trek, the motion picture, there's a lot, I'm really interested in the, uh, the, the, stuff that was cut out uh, the entire huge sequence of the uh, the brain or the, the uh, what was it the uh, they had these like cells or something inside of V'ger the the memory wall sequence the memory wall yeah 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 the memory wall thing and there's some pictures and artwork and stuff like that um, that would be interesting to do that you know but I uh, after that though it would be just like well you know I have a life too. So. <laughs> <laughs> Not unless I'm going to be starting to get paid to be a curator. Because you know? there's a lot to do. <laughs> oh, man. Man, I tell you. Yeah, there's a ton to do. And, you know, and it's pretty interesting because, uh, yeah, Lincoln Enterprises also sold film clips from the movies. Um, and they sold a lot of stuff from the motion picture. So there's a lot of actually deleted material out there in people's collections from the motion, pic- motion picture in particular that we could draw on. Um, there's a little bit of stuff from the Wrath of Khan, but eventually the studio stopped uh, providing film to Lincoln Enterprises, and so that sort of drops off. And by the time you get to the search for Spock, Voyage Home, um, at least the, the film isn't out there. Not like, you know, with the original series in the motion picture. So we could do it, uh, definitely, but uh, we would have to work a lot harder. Well, you know, if Dan and I have some free time, we'll help you out. That? <laughs> oh, cool. All right. You're, we'll, we'll hire you. You, you guys. Yeah. It would be a pleasure for sure. You got the job. <laughs> well, uh, I mean, you know, we'll wrap this up, but I mean, 270 pages, big pages, colorful, all these photos, all this information. I, I mean, it's incredible job. I mean, it looks like, yeah, you put eight years of heavy lifting into this. So we really appreciate it. Uh, Thank you. Kudos to you guys. Yeah, it was a, it was a labor of love. I mean, it really was. Uh, and uh, we're real happy with the way it came out. Yeah, it, it was a fun labor of love. We, yeah. we, enjoyed, we enjoyed it. Yep. And to a note to everyone out there listening, Christmas is coming up and this would be an incredible gift for anybody who's a huge Star Trek fan. Uh, even like I find stuff like this, there's, there's kind of a spectrum of, of fans. There's really casual fans and then there's really hardcore crazy fans. And speaking as someone who's from that latter group, the fact that I found so much in here that I didn't know before and hadn't seen before means that this is good for any fan of Star Trek. I think there's so much interesting stuff in here that you know, anybody who calls themselves a fan of Star Trek would love to see this under the tree this year. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Well, I was just going to say, uh, if we could just, uh, I'd like to know what you guys uh, found the most interesting, most surprising. Hmm. That's a, that's a good question. We've talked a lot about a lot of it. Um, I think, uh, 
Oh, it was the one of them was the um, the encounter on Cestus three with the Gorn that apparently the Enterprise crew member, we see them die. Whereas in the episode, oh, we just hear, I think black. it's Kellowitz is dead, sir, or something like that. Yeah. And there's a scene where he comes around the corner and comes face to face with a Gorn and gets vaporized. Yeah. And when I saw that that on the cover, I thought that was the the guy that we see get killed earlier in the episode. But then I realized, no, that's a totally different scene. And I, I thought that was really cool. And then that cuts to, uh, they got Lang, sir. <laughs> right. That's right. Yeah. Yep. Right. Yeah, he really got it. <laughs> yeah. For me, I think the thing I was most interested in and surprised about are the shots of the ship, how it uses, it loses a generation or so every time they process a special effect and they have to put it on blue screen and then put the image behind. And so the picture of the ship looks fuzzier and fuzzier as time goes on, as you composite the shot. But then when you look at the actual film clips or actual photos of the ship, it's very crisp and clear. And Mm -hmm. so if they could have, you know, the technology wasn't there then with the special effects like it is with digital today, yeah. but That's you know, just losing. Yeah, exactly. That whole analog thing of using gen- generations of of the uh, shot, and it's not as crisp and clear as it could have been. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's especially true uh, with the planets. To, yeah. me, to me, there's just a phenomenal amount of detail in the planets, uh, the painting and then the surface texture. It's all wiped out, really on the final print. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the fact that they were actual three-dimensional globes that were painted and textured, I think uh, that was really cool. I had no idea. Yeah. So, you know, and it makes sense because you do see it kind of um, turn and orbit and you see features disappear behind. So I never thought of like what had to go into that to practically do that on set. That was really cool. Mm-hmm. So if anybody wants to go to your website, I, I want to give you the chance to, promote that site again and and where you guys might be online if people want to reach out to you um well you can there there's links for email on the site um it's star trek i think we have both dave and i have uh emails on there listed on there where you can reach us yep and, and kurt and i also do uh semi-regular blogs on the star trek.com uh, the official star trek uh, website and yes. Our emails are at the bottom of that too, and so if people want to reach out, reach out to us through those emails. Um, absolutely, perfect, and especially if they have some piece of treasure that they could share with you yeah. in case you want to put it on your site of the history of Star Trek, StarTrekHistory.com. Yeah. Yeah. Always looking forward to that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you guys so much. Uh, first of all, for this book because you know it's it's something that I'm going to be returning to over and over again, I think. Mm -hmm. And also thanks so much for coming on and sharing your experience, writing it and uh, the process of what went into it. I really appreciate it. Oh, it was a real pleasure. Yeah. Thank you, man. That was a really great conversation. I think, uh, and I really stand by what I said. I think if you're looking for a good uh, gift for any Star Trek fan this year, this is a really good one. Star Trek lost scenes by David Talata and Kurt McElhoney. And I also I th- had the thought while we were doing this, we did, as we mentioned, talk with Michael and Denise Akuda about 
the Star Trek The Roddenberry Vault Blu-ray set that came out a while ago. And if you want to check out that episode, I think it pairs really nicely with this one. And that's episode 176, Trek Archaeologists. So a lot of the same kind of material going into this as as with that. And I think they're a really good companion to each other. Yeah. And as a matter of fact, when I was reading this book, I thought, wow, this kind of reminds me of the vault, you know, the Roddenberry vault stuff. Not that it's the same content, but it's that same experience of just digging into these archives of things that we haven't seen before. And again, as I mentioned during the feature that I'll be watching these episodes in a different way because my mind's going to go back to some of the things I've read or seen in this book. So mm-hmm really is a great treasure. And I, I think that's the right term for it. It's a treasure. Definitely. Yeah. And and like you said, I'm glad you mentioned that it's not a repeat of content. There's but the content in this book and in that DVD or Blu-ray set are very different. So it's, it's really adding to the, the wealth of knowledge of behind the scenes, Star Trek stuff. Well, it's been fun talking about this treasure today, but it isn't the only thing we've been discussing on the network. So here's a quick look at some of the other things you may have missed elsewhere on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.FM, Standard Orbit. It has no opposable appendages, so I'm not sure how it, like, stole the pump. But that, be that as it may. Without damaging it. Yeah, it's in perfect condition. Oh, yeah, here it is back. No acid burns on it. Yeah, it's fine. You know, just like you unscrewed it from the thing, you know, really carefully and... Anyway, because this is a good episode, we're going to let that go. If this is a bad episode, we'd be like, this is so stupid. Earl Grey. Did we, I have a feeling we had we talked about Echo Paca, uh, Papa 607, didn't we? We, ta- oh, we didn't yes, we talk did. about it on a... Well, we were talking about it a little bit before we started recording on the role-playing one. Right? Oh, that's right. That's what you were thinking of. Okay. A little secret thing our listeners didn't hear. <laughs> All right. Right, right, right. Because <laughs> you had like your your camera drone that was showing us the dice rolls that you had, and you called it Echo Papa 607. <laughs> that's right. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> that's right. I know. You do these things, and you're like... Did we record that? Did listeners hear that? <laughs> I was like, I remember that. I was like, I don't remember. I was like, it, was it was it a character? No. <laughs> no, <Nope, So>. no. <nope. laughs> Literary treks. So this, of course, leads to a whole bunch of weird temporal shenanigans and paradoxes and that sort of thing as they figure out what they have to do to change history so that they don't it doesn't turn out like it does in the alternate future in book two but at the same time not changing their past history so that they're not destroyed with the rest of the universe. And oh my god, I've gone cross-eyed. <laughs> Warp 5. They've determined that they have to get to the Guardian of the Galaxy. Guardian of the Galaxy. <laughs> Guardian of Forever. Oh my goodness. They we can get... work in the Guardians of the Galaxy. It could, could work. That would just be crazy. <laughs> they have to work in the Guardian of Forever because somehow the Guardian of Forever is actually was created by the Temporal Cold War people. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. And you'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad, or Apple TV, or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes of all of our shows as soon as they're published. And if you have the chance, we'd love it if you'd leave us a star rating and written review as well. 
If you're not an Apple user, though, we've got you covered as well. You can find all of the shows from Trek FM on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, YouTube, in most third-party apps. And you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link there as well. If you'd like to help us keep our shows coming to you each and every week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash trekfm. And you'll get all the details there, including perks to early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more available through our special patrons website, Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month. We really appreciate any support you can give us and hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. If you have any thoughts on today's show, we'd love to hear from you, and there are many ways for you to do that. The best place, of course, is to join in the larger conversation on the Babel Conference. That's our listeners group on Facebook. Just type Babel, that's B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook and it should come right up. We'll, of course, have a thread for this episode and we'd love to hear your comments about it there. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm contact. Choose to send to a show and select Literary Treks and that'll come right to us. You can also find the network on Twitter at TrekFM and on Facebook at Facebook.com slash TrekFM. And you can find us on Goodreads. We have a Goodreads group there. Go to Goodreads.com and search for Literary Treks and click Join Group and you can come right in and you'll see all the previous books we've covered including some of the current books we're reading so you know what's coming up on future shows and such and get into the conversation with everyone. So go to goodreads.com and search for literary treks. And we'd like to thank Norman C. Lau, Ken Tripp, Greg Rosier, Brandon Shamutala, Justin Ozer, and Jeffrey Harlan for their support of the Trek FM network and being associate producers for literary treks as well. Now, Dan, when you're not spending eight years of your life digging through all kinds of treasures in the Star Trek original series universe, where can people find you? Well, I can think of nothing I'd rather do, but when I'm not doing that, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Kurtrats, that's K-E-R-T-R-A-T-S. You can also find me on youtube.com slash Kurtrats Productions, where I make videos mostly about Star Trek. Who am I kidding? It's like 99.9% about Star Trek. Uh, And I've also got my website at treklit.com, where I review Star Trek novels, both old and new. And Bruce, when you're not standing on a couple boxes just to reach that one shoebox at the very back of your closet that you just know has film strips from that deleted scene from that one episode that you just love, where can we find you? Hold on. I'm reaching. I almost have it. It's... Whoa! Uh, Sorry, I fell. (laughs) And you know, after all that, it turned out to be from the alternative factor. Just kidding, Brandon. (laughs) (laughs) You can find me on Twitter at Admiral underscore Rex. You can find me on Live from the Edge with Brandy Jackala right here on the Trek FM network. Every time a new Discovery episode comes out, we're live the next day. The short treks, it's the night of. And you can find me talking Star Wars on the Star Wars Report podcast. And of course, I'm always in the Babel Conference. So thanks everyone for listening. And until next time, live long and read on. You call that light reading? To each his own, number one.